to Literature Done Juicy, a show that explores books in the juiciest way possible. My name's Jade Palmer and we are currently in our second season, which is featuring books that have lost protagonists within them. Today's episode is episode eight of this season and we are going to be discussing the classic Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. I originally planned on launching this episode during the Christmas week, but things got a little bit hectic and I definitely got into holiday mode. So that kind of got pushed a week behind. And I thought that I would do all of a twist because Charles Dickens is often associated with Christmas through his novel A Christmas Carol. And so I thought thought that would be kind of cliche and I was going to do Oliver Twist instead. So here we are. There's also a rumor, thanks to A Christmas Carol, that Dickens invented Christmas to be the way that it is in terms of the commercialized aspect of it and the way we decorate and eat. That idea is kind of ridiculous because obviously Christmas is based on the birth of Jesus Christ and it's also been celebrated throughout Roman history and early celebrations of Christmas are even thought to have derived from Roman and other European festivals that marked the end of the harvest and the winter solstice. Christmas as a whole is also derived from both pagan and Christian traditions and there are actually still debates as to whether the holiday was originally a religious or not. Now, Oliver Twist is technically Charles Dickens' first novel, and this is a technicality because he did publish some uh, collection of drawings, which were entitled The Pickman's Papers, prior to Oliver Twist. So it's his first novel, but not his first popular work. I'm sure most people have either read the novel or seen a film adaptation of Oliver Twist, so I'm going to keep the introduction and the breakdown of the plot quite short. Firstly, the novel itself is one which falls into the realm of literary realism, and Charles Dickens was the giant in the mid-19th century for writing within this genre. Literary realism simply means to present content in the most realistic way possible. It usually or normally never has any kind of fantastical elements within the story and it usually focuses on day-to-day tasks, things that are usually considered quite usual and boring in terms of fictional content. Now, due to this, Oliver Twist, like I said, is considered literary realism. And we follow Oliver, who is a poor orphan kid. He's born in a workhouse and life's pretty brutal for him. He eventually leaves and ends up in London, where he gets mixed up with a shady gang of young crooks, led by a Jewish man called Fagin. Now, the story takes you on a roller coaster of adventures, trials, and also has some surprising connections. It digs deep into issues like social injustice, poverty, and basically how messed up society can be in Victorian England. Oliver himself is just trying to figure out where he fits in in this tough world. Okay, so here is a little character breakdown. Oliver is obviously the main protagonist and he's pretty two-dimensional and boring and he barely even features within the final third of the novel. If you've been living under a rock 
he is the orphan that asks, please, sir, can I have some more? And he has a somewhat unrealistic, optimistic outlook on life. And it's so optimistic considering his circumstances. It makes him unbelievable. And he is, yeah, definitely a fairly uninteresting character, but he is a useful tool to demonstrate that children within that time and even today do not have agency. Then we have Fagin, who is the enigmatic leader of the young crooks who Oliver joins when he reaches London. In the novel, Dickens takes this controversial approach because he often refers to Fagin not by his name, but simply as the Jew. And this depiction, even back then in the Victorian era, sparked many discussions and a little bit of outrage about the anti-Semitic stereotypes that he was pushing within his novel. However, Dickens did deny these allegations and ended up republishing the book with Fagin being referred to as Fagin and not as the Jew. We then have John Dawkins, aka the Artful Dodger, who is one of Fagin's most prized child criminals within his gang. And the Dodger embodies the street smart charm that often masks this harsh realities of the criminal life for children back in those times. And his character often is being portrayed in other forms of media as he's influenced a myriad of street smart figures in literature and popular culture. We then have Nancy and she's probably one of the most intriguing characters because she stands at this crossroad of good and evil. Her complexity adds layers to the narrative which are missing within Oliver's character as she grapples with her choices which ultimately lead her to a tragic demise when she chooses the morally good one. This complex portrayal has made her a focal point in discussions within feminist discourse because at the time she was a prostitute which was quite common and it explores through Nancy themes of autonomy and societal constraints. And then the last main character within the novel is Bill Sykes. He's Nancy's pimp and lover and has this hot temper and very antagonistic nature. He contributes to the darkest side of Oliver Twist and he's a bit of a contentious character because he embodies those sinister elements that Dickens weaves into his story, applying this sense of moral decay within the world around Oliver. Okay, so let's get into the themes. Food, starvation, and consumption are very prominent within Oliver Twist, and this is due to Dickens' critique on the poor laws which were introduced in the 1800s. Initially, the poor laws were created by the government to allow poor people to work for food and beds instead of money. However, this practice began to be exploited as the business owners quickly realized that they could save money by barely feeding those working for free. One of the most iconic lines within Oliver Twist is, please, sir, I want some more. Food is used in these times as power. So if you have food, you're in a powerful position. And if you have none, you are not. The segregation used via the control of food makes people within this society turn and work against each other instead of working collaboratively. And this is even shown quite early on within Oliver Twist when there's suggestions of actual cannibalism because one of the children working hinted darkly to his companions that if he didn't get enough gruel that he would eat his bedmate. 
The type of food the children in the poorhouse were forced to eat solidified the message that they cannot rise above their station and that they'll be forever working for free for those that are in power. The sustenance that are provided to the children becomes a powerful tool for the reinforcement of social hierarchies and it is just this stark message that they'll never escape. Even when Oliver gets to London and joins Fagan's gang, the social norms of eating within the middle class is removed because they practice communal dining, where back in those days, if you were middle class, you wouldn't eat like that. Fagan and Oliver come together for their meals, which is defying the conventional expectations of a worker eating with their employer So this communal act underscores the importance that Dickens places on forming and celebrating bonds through eating and also highlights the camaraderie that transcends these social expectations within this unconventional group. This subversion is particularly important because class and social position were fundamentally ingrained within Victorian England and those that were considered upper class did their best to distance themselves from their social inferiors. And a really good example in Oliver Twist is the first breakfast, which is at Sourberries. And the reason it's important is because Oliver is made to eat in the coldest corner of the room, while Charlotte and the apprentice Noah get to sit at the table in the kitchen. This segregation makes sure that Oliver knows that he is not on the same level as them. A similar kind of trend is occurring in contemporary times where those who have more money and status and power are eating out more regularly and posting it on social media at a greater rate, demonstrating that they're eating this really nice food that other people can't afford or other people don't have access to. And this trend isn't just confined to those who are extremely rich. So in Australia alone, dining out is intricately linked to class, but even the middle class are contributing to this trend. So in 2018, Australians collectively spent a whopping $45 billion on eating out. And this averaged for people eating out two to three times a week. And the most notable correlation in terms of the likelihood of a family or person eating out was tied in with the household income. And if you have a higher household income, your likelihood of dining out is at a greater probability. Closely related to food in Victorian England is clothing and its tie-in with class. A common belief for English Victorians were that advanced civilizations, so those that are in an industrial city, did bring with them negative behaviours such as drunkenness, insanity, crime and suicide. So social class identity is imposed on Oliver in the early sections of the novel based partly because of his clothing. As the novel develops, Dickens then further probes the issue of clothing in relation to dehumanising the poor. So Dickens depicts with brutal imagery the harsh system in which Oliver is placed. He writes, He was badged, ticketed and fell into his place at once a parish child, the orphan of a workhouse, the humble, half-starved drudge to be cuffed and buffeted through the world, despised by all and pitied by none. 
So the word choice here presents the image of Oliver as nothing more than a cog in a machine. And he is ticketed, which kind of gives you this imagery of cattle. So when cattle are put branded and that kind of thing, or they've got the tag in there, yeah. And the animalistic nature of this description just allows the reader to see how inferior the poor were considered to be simply due to their appearance. Now, once Oliver rids himself of these rags, he's elated and he describes the clothes as being safely gone and that he is no longer in a danger from them. The issue of changing one's clothes to assume a different identity is raised on a number of occasions throughout the novel, especially in reference to Nancy and the artful Dodger. And this is because both outfits uh, place them suddenly in different levels of society when they get dressed up to rob people or to blend in to commit crimes. Nancy is given this emphasis of her dishevelled physicality in order to convey to the reader the harsh fact that the way she looks distinguishes her as poor, especially compared to other feminine characters such as Rose Amelie, who is described as a lovely, dainty and angelic. Dickens uses Nancy's unrefined appearance later in the novel to also make a point about clothing as a social marker. And this is when Nancy is ordered to recapture Oliver, she is given a new outfit to do so. The dirty look she has upon Oliver's first meeting with her would draw too much attention to her because she is trying to kidnap him back from a higher class and they would note that her appearance linked her or suggested involvement with the criminal underworld. When she's about to do this, Fagin even hands her a straw basket and tells her to carry it in one hand because it makes her look more respectable. Clothing and class, even in modern times, continues to be intertwined as it serves as both a reflection of social status and also a means of self-expression. And although the lines aren't as rigid as it was back in the Victorian era, clothing choices still convey a wealth of information about an individual's identity, lifestyle and socioeconomic standing, especially in terms of those who wear high-end brands and luxury goods. So wearing high-end or luxury brands is often associated with higher social classes. These brands are not only a status of symbol but also signify an individual's ability to afford expensive, often exclusive items. Luxury brands are different to normal brands because they have a sociological characteristic that differ from mass market brands. They are considered an exclusive privilege for the elite much like the differing of the upper class to the lower class within Oliver Twist. People who wear luxury brands and items are doing so to signal their status without voicing it outright. And they are basically just a visible code to state, hi, I have money and you do not. This same technique has been used throughout history and is still being actioned today. However, there is actually currently a bit of a target on millennials and Gen Zers because both of these generations have a higher value put on experiences rather than material possessions. And the luxury brands have noticed this and are trying to change their marketing to target these generations. So what did upper class Victorians wear to distinguish themselves from the middle and lower class? 
Rich women typically wore corsets under their dresses. And at the beginning of the Victorian era, it was fashionable to wear a crinoline under a skirt, which is a petticoat made of horsehair fabric. And it's basically just a big round hoop at the bottom of the dress that makes it look wide and circular at the base. Other than these two items, they would typically wear a lot of layers. And because there were so many layers, it would usually mean that a servant would usually have to dress the women because they actually weren't able to get everything on themselves. And the fabrics that were utilized by rich Victorians were usually silk or satin and men would wear suits or waistcoats with bowler hats and then would don a top hat for special events. It was said that Victorian ladies did have a dress for every occasion which I can totally relate to because funnily enough, my boyfriend pointed out to me that I have nearly one dress for every week in the year. So I'm practically a Victorian lady. And they also wore garments which were categorized by the time of day, which means they simply wore different types of outfits. Similar to Nancy, some women who were less fortunate within a Victorian society found themselves drawn into prostitution due to limited opportunities and societal restrictions. In Victorian London, jobs were scarce, particularly for women who did face significant limitations on the type of employment that they could pursue. Uh, common occupations for women included domestic service, factory work, and seamstress roles. And those fortunate enough to secure employment often faced low wages and really bad working conditions, prompting the need to explore alternative means of income. So for men, this was usually petty theft and pickpocketing, which is very very similar to the Apple Dodger and Fagin and the gang as a whole. However, for women, the sex trade emerged as a relatively lucrative option and street walking was the most prevalent form of prostitution during this era. Those that partook in it usually did it as a side gig. However, some did rely primarily on it as a source of income. And Victorian society did hold a deep concern for the perceived fallen status of women who engaged in such practices. The prevailing belief was that the loss of a woman's sexual innocence would lead to a decline in respectability, potentially pushing her into this life of prostitution. And Charles Dickens himself was a keen observer of these societal issues and he actually addresses them within Oliver Twist. So in response to the societal challenges faced by these fallen women, Dickens collaborated in real life with a woman called Angela Coutts, and they established the Uranian Cottage in 1840s, and this was an asylum aimed to rescue and reform women who engaged in prostitution. Dickens emphasised the opportunity for these women to regain happiness and societal acceptance through the shelter's support. So yeah, he opened up this shelter to help those who were prostitutes or potentially were going to become prostitutes. And the portrayal of Nancy, who is a prostitute in Oliver Twist, delves into the theme of the other, which is a concept prevalent in Victorian literature. Fallen women were often considered this other, which we have spoken about in other episodes of the podcast because it is such a prevalent theme in so many different books. And they were considered this because they were seen as shadowy figures by the upper class and they were used as this kind of scary outcome to reinforce middle class norms. 
Alan Stockstill's 2015 paper, which was entitled The Fallen Woman and the British Empire in Victorian Literature and Culture, discussed the lesser known history of the fallen women who were transported to Australia during the First Fleet. So not only are Australians convicted criminals, but we're also a bunch of whores. The paper found that one of the main reasons that the prostitutes were sent to Australia was to keep the angelic women in Britain and to send the scary other away and remove them so they can't contaminate the angels that were left behind. So despite Dickens challenging the notion that fallen women were sources of disease and moral degradation, his portrayal of Nancy does end tragically as she meets this violent end at the hands of her boyfriend. So this contradictory outcome raises questions about the effectiveness of Dickens because he's still saying that she ends up dying because of her choices in life. But then again, she does die because she makes the morally correct choice by trying to save Oliver. In exploring the complexities of Victorian society, Dickens grappled with the challenges faced by women in the marginal communities and contributed to a nuanced understanding of gender, class and societal expectations during this era. Prostitutes were prevalent and 50 years after the publication of Oliver Twist was when Jack the Ripper struck, which was also within Victorian times, but obviously a lot later. And his tale... And by tale, I mean his murder spree addresses the grim and impoverished conditions in Victorian London. Jack Ripper is the infamous and identified serial killer who terrorised the Whitechapel district of London in the late 19th century. He got his name because it was derived from letters written to the media and police by someone who claimed to be the killer. The murders attributed to him occurred between August and November of 1888 and the victims were all working prostitutes who were gruesomely mutilated and the killer then displayed a knowledge of anatomy as well after these women were killed. The brutality and the lack of a clear motive contributed to the mystique surrounding the case and canonically there are five victims of Jack the Ripper. So we have number one who is Mary Ann Nichols. She was killed on the 31st of August 1888 and was the first known victim. Her body was discovered in Buckrose in Whitechapel. The second victim was Annie Chapman. She was murdered on the 8th of September in the same year and her body was found in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street and mutilated in a very similar manner to the first victim, Mary. Then on the 30th of September, Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Endos were murdered on the same night. Stride's body was found in Duckfield's yard, while Edo's was discovered in Mitra Square. And the brutality of Edo's murder included the removal of her uterus, which was why some people believed that Jack the Ripper had a very good knowledge of anatomy. And then the fourth and final canonical victim is Mary Jane Kelly, who was murdered on the 9th of November and she was murdered inside her own home at 13 Miller's Court and her murder was particularly gruesome with extensive mutilations. So Jack the Ripper's identity is still unknown and there have been numerous theories about who the suspects could have 
been. But obviously due to the lack of forensic technology and very primitive investigation methods of the time, no one's apprehended the killer and now he's definitely dead. But here are some notable conspiracy theories. So one is the royal conspiracy. One theory suggests that the killer was a member of the British royal family and proponents of this theory argue that the authorities covered up the crimes to protect the royal family's reputation. The person that people believe was killing all these people was Prince Albert Victor, who was Queen Victoria's grandson. The second notable conspiracy theory was the Freemason connection. So people believed that it was part of a Masonic ritual or that the killer was a Freemason themselves. But again, there's little evidence to really support this. The third and a little bit more far-fetched theory suggests that it was a notorious American serial killer, H.H. H. Holmes, that they also think that he was Jack the Ripper and he was active during the same period in the United States, but it's kind of very unclear how he got from the US to England and did the same thing. And then there's also a really weird theory that it's an alien abduction, so that these women were abducted, probed and worked on and then dumped back. So yeah, 50 years on, we have Jack the River who's killing prostitutes. Yeah, it kind of just demonstrates how dangerous the profession would have been then. But yeah, I guess at the time they would have had to weigh up what was going to be more beneficial to starve and die anyway or to sell themselves on the street and actually be able to get a little bit of food. But with the potential of dying from either the hands of the male clientele, diseases or sickness really. And that's all we have time for today. If you've learned something new, please remember to subscribe to the podcast and rate and review if you haven't already. Our Instagram is in the description box for even more refreshing content. In the next episode, I will be discussing Life of Pi. I'm your host, Jade Palmer. Until next time, happy reading and remember to stay juicy.